So that first clip was from the, the film Dunkirk, and then it went straight into the trailer for the film Darkest Hour, which is about Winston Churchill, who is arguably one of Britain's, one of the greatest ever Britons, but a somewhat unlikely hero. Um, overweight, a face like an ageing cherub, and a dangerous like of cigar and whiskies. But he was absolutely the man that Britain needed when our nation was under such great threat. A man of steely will and fierce intention. No other man could have commanded such a resolute defence of our nation when so many others in office were wavering. And fierce determination was the hallmark of his leadership. But it wasn't a physical fierceness, it was a fierceness of mind and will. And the opposition that, that Churchill was facing was, was immense, actually, and on multiple sides. The might of the German army seemed overwhelming. The government was divided on how to respond. And even those within his inner circle were resisting his determination to fight back. And if it wasn't for his fierce intent to see it through, then things could have looked very, very different. And we will come back to, to Churchill later in this talk. But for now, I want to look at that same quality in Jesus, fierce intention. Um, and most likely the, the purging of the temple is, is probably the best example of this fierce intent in the heart of Jesus. And it was the author, John Eldridge, that really opened my eyes to what it must have taken to do what he did that morning. Actually, I don't know whether it was morning. I don't know whether I said that, that day. Um, and um, I think some, some people may feel more comfortable with this notion of Jesus um, kind of politely shooing these one-ton beasts along with this kind of polite shooing action. But I think a closer examination of the scripture suggests there's a very, very different character at the heart of that storm. Because Jesus is evidently furious at what is going on in the temple, a place which should be reserved for the worship of his father. But he doesn't fly off into an immediate rage. He takes time. He first sits down and he makes a whip out of rope. It's evident that he's very, very angry, but he's in control of his rage, his anger. And what follows is a period of planned and sustained aggression. Now, the temple... Temple was a very, very large area. It was multiple football pitches inside, and it had outer courtyards around the inner temple. And the, 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 it, was, it was full with, with animals being sold as sacrifices, where, as well as other people selling currencies so that the foreigners could buy the sacrifices. And it must have been chaos, something the cross between a large stock exchange trading floor combined with a large cattle farm, with people shouting above each other to get the best deal, multiple languages, no doubt confusing the picture. And the Gospels describe how Jesus drove all of it from the temple. Now, to get large numbers of cattle moving in one go requires physical effort and a determination not to be intimidated. And to get all that going in one go, all of the cattle and all those people moving, well, that, it must have, must have been pandemonium animals charging slipping on the stone floor sheep running in all directions as sheep do and then Jesus turns his attention to the money changers and he throws their tables over the coins flying up in the air greedy men scrambling on the ground to pick up their livelihood tables crashing coins bouncing on the ground 
cattle charging, sheep running around, with the cattle owners running to get after their livelihood. And the noise must have been incredible. Jesus shouting and cracking a whip, animals snorting, the cattle owners shouting to get hold of their cattle, the money changers reacting angrily. And for how long? I mean, to clear, a, to clear an, a, an area that size is not a momentary outburst of anger. That is a period of sustained aggression. And at the heart of this explosion is Jesus, just one man and a whip and a fierce intention to rid the temple of everything in it. And John Eldridge puts it beautifully, as he often does. He says, Jesus is a locomotive, a juggernaut. For all practical purposes here, he is the bull in the china shop. Now, this is, a, this is a side to Jesus that we don't typically see in oil paintings or stained glass windows. This is not a pacifist or a non-confrontational Jesus. There's no dithering. There's no timidity. He is a tidal wave of passion and fury. And his, his fierce intention is also evident in the way that he, he won't be pushed off course, whether that be by the political power at the time or the religious leader or even the people around him, the Jews that wanted him to become king through violent means. Jesus knows the narrow path and he is going to tread it regardless of the consequences. And the pressure that he must have been under to acquiesce to the religious leaders must have been incredible or at least to stay under their radar. They were out to get him. They wanted him out of the way and they would do whatever it took to discredit him. And in one... um, One story in Mark 2, we have the story of Jesus walking through a field of grain with his disciples on the Sabbath. And as they're walking along, they're just picking bits of grain to eat as they go. And the Pharisees see this and they accuse him of breaking the law by harvesting on the Sabbath. Now, clearly the Pharisees were entirely missing the point that the Sabbath being the whole point of the Sabbath about rest so that you can be restored by God. And all these rules that the Pharisees had created were actually getting in the way of the main point of the Sabbath. And Jesus confronts them on this, and he actually confronts them with Scripture. He reminds them of the time when David, in the Old Testament, eats the, and his disciples eats the sacred loaf that's reserved for the high priests. Now, if you want to get gnarly, if you want to get the Pharisees gnarly with you, then challenging them on scripture is the best way to do it. I mean, they were all about scripture, learning it, living by it, remembering it, teaching it. That was their raison d'etre. So Jesus isn't taking a submissive approach here. He is challenging them head on. And then the very next thing that we read in the book of Mark is Jesus in the synagogue on the Sabbath again, under the watchful gaze of the Pharisees. And a man comes up to Jesus with a deformed hand in need of healing. But Jesus knows if he heals that man, the Pharisees are going to be enraged at what he's done. Now, Jesus could heal the man in all manner of ways. He could take him to one side out of of sight and heal him. He could wait until everyone's gone. Or he could even heal him when he's not present like he did with the centurion's servant. But he doesn't. 
He gets the man to stand up in front of everyone and he makes a spectacle of the situation. He rebukes the Pharisees and then he dismantles their false logic of not healing on the Sabbath. And then before he heals the man in front of everyone, it says in the book of Mark that Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Oh, to know what that look must have looked like. To see the look of fierce disappointment on the face of Jesus. It must have been disturbed. It must have been memorable for it to be noted by the eyewitness and recorded in the book in the first place. And the Pharisees must have been pretty disturbed because it says how they immediately went out and began to plot with the Herodians how to kill Jesus. And that was the reality of the path that Jesus was walking. It was leading him to a very dangerous place, quite literally into the heart of Hades, a path that was opposed by the religious leaders, the political powers, and the forces of darkness. And these once sworn enemies, the Herodians and the Pharisees, are now working together to kill Jesus, both no doubt infiltrated by the the spiritual forces of darkness. Jesus' journey, his path, was taking him deep behind enemy lines, and it would need a very fierce intent to stick through it, stick to it. Not even the Jews and his closest followers really understood what he was up to. They wanted him to become king of Israel. They wanted him to overthrow the Romans and free them from occupation. They didn't understand his non-violent and servant-hearted approach. We're going to take another look at the film Darkest Hour now. Um, So the first clip you saw was from from Dunkirk. So that was a point in the Second World War where it was effectively a tipping point. Things were looking pretty grim. We had 300,000 men stuck on that beach in Dunkirk and the German army had encircled us. It's brilliant, isn't it? The, um, The odds were not looking good for Great Britain at that time. We had most of our army trapped on that beach in Dunkirk, but Churchill knew you can't reason with such overwhelming opposition. All you can do is resist with a fierce determination not to yield. But unfortunately, Churchill, just like Jesus, was facing opposition on multiple fronts. At the time of Dunkirk, he didn't have the support of the king, as you saw in the the start of that clip. Um, He had political opposition, but also many within his own party were resisting him. And actually, many within his own party didn't actually want him to become prime minister in the first place. And then you have the weakness of the war cabinet, his inner circle, who, who didn't understand what he was trying to do. Very much like the disciples didn't really understand why Jesus was willingly going to the cross. And you even hear one of the war cabinet refer to it as suicide. Well, yes, it was effectively suicide, but you could say the same about the cross. The war cabinet, just like the disciples, wanted Churchill to take an easier path, one that didn't involve unnecessary sacrifice. And then you also saw in that clip that Churchill was facing opposition, particularly from Viscount Halifax, And and Halifax um, didn't want, effectively wanted Churchill to take the path of least resistance. And you saw at the end there that he got a stern rebuke from Churchill for his views. And it reminded me very much of when Jesus rebukes Peter 
when Peter is challenging Jesus to take an easier path, that he shouldn't suffer and die. And Jesus turns to him and says, get ye behind me, Satan. Churchill knew what he was asking of the Calais garrison was suicide, which is why he had to see it through with such fierce intention. Jesus knew that his mission to go to the cross, to suffer and die, was effectively suicide, which is why he had to see it through with such fierce intention. Churchill would not yield to the enemy of his time, and Jesus would not yield to the enemy of his time either. And both would require a fierceness of character that are rarely seen, a fierceness that looks the opposition in the eye and says, never, never, never. Just as a very brief aside, when, when I'm talking about fierceness and anger and aggression, I'm not talking about physical aggression. Uh, nor am I advocating war for that matter. I realise this film is about Churchill leading um, us through war, but that's not the point we're trying to make of these, these clips. The question of whether war is ever appropriate or whether physical aggression is ever appropriate is not actually something I want to addressing this talk because it's a bit of a distraction. That said, if anyone does want to discuss it, then please come and find me um, at some point this weekend. So Jesus could be fierce. Of that, there is no doubt. Whether that be resisting Satan himself in the temptation of the wilderness, or whether that be rebuking spirits with a strong command, or whether he rebuked the storm that terrified the disciples, or when he was raising Lazarus from the dead with a roar. But interestingly, Jesus was rarely fierce with individuals. The, the Pharisees and the religious leaders seem to be notable exceptions. Rather, what we tend to see with Jesus' interactions with others is, is mercy and compassion. And so despite the fierce intent of a man on a mission. He's not just an angry man. He's not the sort of person that gets angry with his own shadow. His, his fierceness is controlled and only used when absolutely necessary. And on one of the many occasions when the Pharisees were trying to trap him, um, they set a trap for him um, around the question of payment of taxes to Rome. And it really was a very, very clever trap, um, not least because of the, the occupation of Jerusalem and the expectation of the Jews that they should be set free. And also because um, no doubt Jesus as a good Jew would not have recognised the false claim of divinity that the Caesar at the time was making. And so the, the, the Pharisees set this trap for Jesus and they ask him about um, whether it is right to pay taxes to Rome. And, and so he, he recognises this trap and he, he responds with an incredibly balanced answer. And he asks for the coin and he asks them, who is this image? Whose is this inscription on the coin? And of course they say, Caesar's. And to then, then he says, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And then it says that they were amazed at what he said and they went away and left him. It's such a brilliant response. He, does, he doesn't side with the Pharisees, but neither does he get drawn into an unnecessary spat about Roman occupation of Jerusalem. Now, I'm sure there is much he could have said about Roman occupation and the oppression of the Jews, but he chose not to. He chose not to fight that battle. 
And, and I think there is a lesson we can all learn in that about the battles that we choose to fight and the battles we don't choose to fight. And it is very, very easy to get drawn into fighting battle upon battle upon battle. It's very easy to get frustrated with different people's behaviours and get angry about what people do. And, I, and no doubt you've seen, you've come across people like that at church, the people who get angry with the, the noise levels of the worship bands and what fillings in the donuts. They're, they're just pointless battles. Um, I used to work as a negotiator, and one of the, I, I would often find myself in situations of conflict where seemingly I could, we couldn't agree on anything with the counterparty. Even, even just trivial matters about where and when next to meet. Um, but I was also blessed enough to work alongside a senior negotiator that had decades of experience in managing these, these tense um, negotiations. And so I would often go to him with my latest frustration. And, and he would sit there and recline in his chair and he would listen to me rant about the battle that I was in and how frustrated it was and, and all of this kind of angst I had about the situation and he would usually sit there recline his chair listen to me and when I finished he would simply say I wouldn't fight it and so often he was right so often he was right because so often we are we expend all this energy fighting the small battles that we take our eye off the war small battles sap energy they're divisive, and they take our eye off the main goal. And Jesus was evidently a master of restraint when it came to choosing the right battles and those not to fight. But Jesus was clearly very, very mindful of the battles he should fight and those that he shouldn't. But I think there's something much deeper in Jesus' motives than just mere war strategy. And what I mean by that is Jesus was and is love. That's who he is. He is the essence of love. He acts out of love, whether that be for the individual in front of him or for others in general. And so he isn't fierce towards others without a very, very good reason. Now, I was incredibly challenged once by something I heard Timothy Keller say. And he said, when you find yourself in a battle... Ask yourself these two questions. Who am I defending and who am I attacking? So who am I defending? Well, the answer to that question, for most of us, most of the time, is simply me. We love to defend ourselves. Our culture sees it as our individual right and an expression of our freedom to fight for what you believe in. Stand up for yourself. Don't let anyone get the better of you. Fight for your rights. So much fighting, but all done in our own defence. And that is true both at an individual level and a global level. The world spends $3 billion on defence every single day. That's $1 trillion Sent, spent in a given year on defence and security. But yet, across the world, every single day, 70,000 children die of hunger. So that means for every child that dies of hunger in the world every day, we spend 
dollars on defence. So whilst the orphans weep and the widows, oh, sorry, the orphans die and the widows weep, we continue to invest untold sums in the most brutal and sophisticated way of defending ourselves. Can that possibly be right? Well, according to the way of the world, that's just how things have to be. We live in a culture which is obsessed with defending ourselves. And we as individuals will seek to defend ourselves, whichever injustice comes our way. If you trip over at work and hurt yourself, well, sue your employer. If, um, if your flight is delayed just a few hours, well, then you better write a letter of complaint and get some money back from the... Sorry, even to BA, Tom, yes. <laughs> um, if somebody cuts you up on the road then we react with righteous indignation about how our liberty has been so rudely interrupted. And according to the Beastie Boys, we must also fight for our right to party. Now, clearly, there are times, there are times when it is appropriate to defend ourselves. But the point I am trying to make is it gone way too far. And when I, when I reflect on my fierce moments, sadly... I have to say, they are usually in defence of myself. Whether that's getting angry because somebody has cost me two seconds on my journey down the motorway, or whether that be getting angry with the kids because they've interrupted my peace and quiet, or whether that be getting angry because somebody has simply disagreed with something that I've said. And when I reflect on some of my least proud moments, they are generally where I have been defending myself and attacking those closest to me in the process. My, um, my son Reuben and I, a few years back, were going out on a bike ride, and we both had shiny new bikes. Um, but sadly, I was more protective of my shiny new bike than he was of his. And um, in his enthusiasm, he, he kept just jumping off the bike and letting it crash to the ground. And I was, a number of times I said to him, Calmly, I said, hey, Reuben, you've, you've just got to be a little bit more careful about your property. And that was, that was fine. I was doing it calmly um, and with grace. But I have to say, my frustrations were growing with every chip of paint that fell to the ground. And then we got home and we went into the back garden, cycled into the back garden. And I carefully laid my bike down on the, on the lush green grass. And Reuben comes hurtling in on his, jumps off his bike turns and just leaves his bike to fall on top of my bike and it took a big chip of paint out of my bike at which point I, I uh, couldn't contain my frustrations and I rebuked him quite sternly um, he was very upset and ran off in tears no doubt not able to understand why daddy was more concerned about his bike it's that same motivation when I get angry with the kids for getting for, for arguing. When I react in anger because they're arguing, it's because I'm really defending my own peace and quiet. And so what I'm doing in those moments is defending myself and attacking them with my words. And that's not good. Um, we're going to go back to Churchill now. Um, because as you probably may know about Churchill, incredibly gifted man and very incredibly fierce in the defense of our, na and our nation. But sadly, it wasn't always a fierceness that he used for the benefit of others. Often, he was fierce in defense of himself. 
It's a, um, it's a lovely scene with his wife. I, I have a, a wife like that that can um, graciously reveal to me when I'm acting like a buffoon. I, um, one, uh, one year for, for Christmas, my wife Jo got me a pot of vitamin pills, but she, she took all of the labels off the vitamin pills, so it was a bare pot, and on the top of it she wrote Grace Pills, and the instructions were to take one every Sunday morning. Um, I'll leave others to deem whether I've been taking them or not. But, um, but back to Churchill and his anger towards others. Um, I think that's a scene that most of us can probably relate to. In his, his fear, his anxiety, his frustrations, he's, he's lashing out and he's effectively attacking those closest to him, those that want to help him, those that love him, his allies. It's stupid, yes, but we all do it. And Churchill had... Um, his, what he was, his, his frustration and his anger, what he's effectively trying to do is he just wants to, to put it on somebody else. And that is called scapegoating. And Churchill, as, you're probably, as you probably know, had a famously quick wit. But it wasn't something that he used just for the benefit of others. More often than not, he was using it to defend himself. His, um, his deputy prime minister, Clement Attlee, he used to refer to as a sheep in sheep's clothing. When, uh, and some of the other quotes that you're probably more familiar with, Nancy Astor was a famous adversary of Churchill's who once said to him, if I were married to you, I'd put poison in your coffee. And he retorted, if I were married to you, I'd drink it. <laughs> and, and another famous Churchill quip um, with a female MP who said, Winston, you're drunk. What's more, you're disgustingly drunk. And he said, my dear, you are ugly. What's more, you are disgustingly ugly. But in the morning, I shall be sober, but you shall still be disgustingly ugly. (laughs) It's absolutely brutal, but sadly, in defence of himself, as fierce as he was in defence of our nation, that fierceness was often used in defence of himself and attacking those closest to him. But that is not the Jesus way. Jesus was never fierce in defense of himself, even though he had every right to be. In fact, he's the only person ever that could rightly claim unfair treatment, but he didn't. As Jesus hung on the cross after being beaten by the Romans, after being falsely accused of blasphemy, after being betrayed by one of his disciples, after being abandoned by the rest of them, And after living a sin-free, blameless life, he had every right to say, this is not fair. He had every right to defend himself. He could have even called a a legion of angels to his side and stopped it all in an instant. But he didn't. Uh, It shows such incredible restraint to have such power available to yourself, but not use it to protect yourself and defend yourself is incredible. Instead, whilst he's hanging on the cross, he's thinking about others. He invites the thief to his side into paradise that day. He arranges care for his mother Mary. And then he says, he asks the father to forgive those that are doing the deeds with the words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. it's, um, It's breathtaking. Perhaps we should have those same words 
written on a sticky note and put on the dashboard of our car for the next time that somebody cuts us up on the motorway. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Maybe then we won't be so quick to defend ourselves over trivial matters. Because sadly, when we are anxious or frustrated or fearful, we, we tend to look for someone to put that frustration on, and that's called scapegoating. We saw Churchill doing it, and it's what we all do. And it happens at a very, very young age. It happens in the school playground when the kids round on one poor young kid who becomes the focal point for their fears and anxieties, and that kid becomes the scapegoat. But we also do it as a society. When things don't go our way or we're fearful, we look for someone to put that frustration onto. So, for example... If the economy's not doing well, then we, we point the finger at the Prime Minister or a political party. When the national football team has a series of poor results, we hang the star striker or the manager out to dry. When a few radical terrorists attack our streets, we blame Islam or we invade Iraq. When church numbers start to, fl- to slide, we blame the pastor. When a, a celebrity gets caught in an ugly act of sin, they get torn apart by the tabloids and made the scapegoat for the fears and anxieties of the readers. It's all a form of scapegoating, attacking someone else to try and alleviate our own fears. But again, that is not the Jesus way. Jesus didn't blame anyone. He didn't blame Judas for betraying him. He didn't blame Peter for denying him three times. He didn't blame the Pharisees for getting him arrested. Sorry, the Pharisees, um, did I mean that? Yes, Lord Pilate for having him handed over. Despite having every good reason to defend himself and attack others, he didn't. He was only ever fierce in defense of others. And so when that angry mob rounded on the woman caught in adultery, he defended her and he was fierce towards her attackers. Those um, Pharisees, effectively, in that mob were looking for a scapegoat. They were looking for someone to put their self-righteous anger onto. And that crowd, again, was whipped up by the Pharisees. They were using it to trap Jesus because under the law of Moses, um, a woman caught, caught in adultery, that required the death penalty. And they wanted to see what Jesus would do. Would Jesus allow them to stone her? By no means. And he was fierce in her defence. He must have been fierce in her defence to hold back an angry mob of men with stones in their hands. And he draws the line in the sand and he says, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. It's incredible. You have a defenceless woman accused and guilty on one side and an angry mob on the other. And he says, he draws a line and he says, you cannot cross that line. And in doing so, he is exposing their sin, their hypocrisy. He is attacking them back, but only out of defense and love for the woman. And this, again, is something that would cost him, because the Pharisees would be enraged at this. His morality would be brought into question. But Jesus isn't thinking about himself. He's not defending himself. He's defending the woman behind him. Chesterton A brilliant quote, he says, the true warrior fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. 
That is the Jesus way. Only ever fierce in defense of others. Only fierce out of love for others. His love is fierce. And so whenever we see that fierceness of Jesus erupt, it's always with good reason. So that fierceness that we saw erupt in the temple was not a frustration about overcrowding. He was defending the rights of the most marginalized to come and worship in the temple. The, uh, the temple, as we spoke about earlier, had been turned into a money-making industry. Animals sold as sacrifices, currency being exchanged. It was the wealthy exploiting the poor. Even worse, it was a form of exploitation that was stopping people from worshipping God. <clears throat> Religion at its worst, if you like. And so Jesus' fierceness is turned towards the perpetrators. But he's doing it out of love for others. After, he, after the temple is clear... It says how the, how the blind and the lame came to him and he healed them. And then the Gospels say that the temple was filled with the voices of children singing Hosanna to the son of David. He cleared the temple, not as a means to hit back at people he disagreed with, but to allow the, meet, the people that most needed to, to come and worship in the temple, the blind, the lame and children. Jesus never simply attacked others. He never looked for a scapegoat. In fact, he was the scapegoat. He became the scapegoat for the Pharisees and the Herodians. They put their self-righteous anger upon him and he became the scapegoat. On the cross, Jesus took the blame. He allowed others to attack him and he resisted the desire to defend himself and protect himself. And in doing so, he showed us a radically different way of being fierce, one that's not focused on defending our own desires and comforts, but is motivated solely in the defense and love of others. Jesus was fierce, a juggernaut of passion and fury, but motivated out of the love for others, a love that would lead him to the cross. Jesus was fierce yet loving.